And I need to let you know, if you have younger ears in here, we're going to be talking about sexuality this morning. And, um, and I, can't, I can't do that in like a rated G way, because the Bible doesn't do that in a rated G way. So um, if you have younger ears, I just want to let you know, unless they're infant ears, which is totally okay, because obviously you guys know about the whole sex thing, you figure that part out. <laughs> but if you have like 10 or 11 year old or younger kids, uh, unless you want to be answering a whole host of interesting questions when you are driving home, I would encourage you, we need help in our kids' ministry and they can go help uh, love on our, our children. Otherwise, I'm going to pretend like there aren't any kids in the room. Now, uh, it's important to realize that when you're looking at a book of the Bible, the Bible was never meant to be broken up into 35-minute chunks every week. The Bible was meant to be read aloud in one sitting to a group of people and then marinated on. And so when we get to a subject like we're going to talk about this morning, we can't set aside the work we've already done that leads us up to this point. There have been three chapters where Paul, a missionary in the first century, writing to a church in Ephesus in Asia Minor, reminds his community of what it means for them to be in Christ. His favorite designation of Christians isn't Christian, and it's not followers of Jesus, it's those in Christ. Christ, that literally their their identity has been swallowed up in the identity of Jesus. They're united with him so that whatever is true of Jesus can also be said to be true of his followers. So literally, his followers are are declared holy because Jesus is holy. His followers are declared righteous because Jesus is righteous. And so the invitation of the book of Ephesians and really of the gospel of Jesus isn't to learn to be nice people. It's not to learn to be religious. It is to become what you already are. You have an identity in Christ that's spoken over you and affirmed over you. And the, uh, the invitation now is to be that to live that. And so Paul, in chapter 4, after he spent three chapters delineating this identity, says, live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Worthy doesn't mean, hey, be worth it. You know, be deserving of the gift. It means instead, live a life fitting to your new identity. So if, if you were to go from being a single person to a married person, the invitation would be, now live like a married person. Right? Or if you go uh, from being parents, or to go from being a couple into being parents, it's now like, live like parents. So your identity is fundamentally changed. The invitation is now to live up to it. And the reason this is so important, guys, listen, is that we're now in a series of the book, we're in a, in a book where there's a series of exhortations that are all moral in nature. And unless you keep that first part in mind, this just seems like moralism and religiousness. It just seems like, ah, here's the catch, I knew it. It's just like every other religious system teaching us to be nice. It's far deeper than that. Jesus is actually interested in transforming us into new kinds of people for whom this is easy. We have a part to play in that, and that's the part that Paul is delineating. Last week, remember, he talked about putting off what is of the old you and putting on what is on the new, what is of the new identity. Right? So put off anger. That doesn't have a place. Put on reconciliation. Put off talking badly about each other and put on encouragement. These are all framed around two facts. Fact number one, you are in Christ. Your identity is changed. And fact number two, whatever Jesus has done for you, do that for each other. It's that simple. Paul says that in chapter 4, verse 32. 
He says, as he's summarizing this whole thing, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Why? Just as Christ forgave you. How can you people who have received such forgiveness hold sins against each other? He says, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In fact, I mean, you could summarize all of the ethical commands in the New Testament with this command. Imitate God and walk in the way of love. However God's treated you, do that for each other. If God's shown you mercy, you show mercy. If God's forgiven you, show forgiveness. If God's loved you, show love. I mean, end of story. So Paul summarizes this huge list of exhortations by saying, hey, you're God's kids... So love each other the same way he's loved you. End of story. Now, this next bit seemingly comes out of nowhere. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking which are out of place but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. So it's kind of a real chipper passage we're looking at this morning. Wouldn't you agree? Now, a little background is going to help us. Now, hold on here. How old is she? Seven months? Dad, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you for taking her and not sending mom to do it nicely. Do you have to feed her? Is she hungry? Because we might need mom for that. I don't know. I mean, I'm not an expert in... So, a little background may help. And this is going to sound so wacky, but if you lived back then, this would make total sense. The way Romans socialized is they would host something called symposia. Symposia was a Latin term that meant drinking party. And I know we don't have those today, but you have to picture back then. <laughs> and literally, these were, these were social gatherings where you would uh, gather, you would get drunk, uh, you would have a comedian or a singer in who would sing about all this immoral stuff, and then literally... Uh, it would open the door to all this sexual impurity stuff. And that's what a, a, a symposia was. Okay, it was one of these like dinner parties, but it was a whole lot more. If you were a Christian in the first century, you had no idea what church was. You'd never heard of like this. If you were Jewish and you got together with other Jewish people, your church gathering would look like a synagogue gathering because that's what you knew. If you were a not-Jewish person, your church gathering would look like one of these drinking parties. Because that's all you knew. You didn't even think it was wrong. So, in Corinth, Paul actually has to write to a church and tell them not to get drunk on the communion wine. That's what you did. So literally, they had no... When, you, when a small group got together in a house and there was wine, you got drunk. So literally, Paul is giving a list of commands to the church. And he will talk about there shouldn't be any sexual immorality in the church. And you shouldn't have coarse joking. 
and foolish talk or obscenity in the church. And then he'll say a few verses later, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, church. So he's actually addressing a community that hasn't the foggiest idea what it means to meet together. I mean, they don't have the slightest clue. And so, ladies and gentlemen, just officially, I want to apply this to our congregation. Okay? When you come here, there will be no sexual intercourse. All right? There will be no coarse joking. There will be fine joking. So good. It's so good. Oh, I love it on so many levels. Ramsey, can I get an amen? I need a stronger amen than that, son. Now, and no one's going to be getting drunk. Can we agree? Okay, hallelujah, let's pray. Unfortunately, however, when Paul talks about sexual immorality, this word, uh, the word that we translate sexual immorality is the word pornea. And, and if you're familiar with church, you know this. Pornea is used 55 times. It's Paul's favorite word to describe sexual impurity. And it means it's used to condemn any sexual activity outside of marriage. End of story. And the definition of marriage isn't a contract recognized by the state. It's a covenant between a man and a woman that's lifetime in nature. So sexual, this word pornea is used against lust. It's used, I mean, every, every sexual thing outside of that covenant, pornea is used to describe. Okay, so anybody who says, hey, where does it say in the Bible you can't have premarital sex? Here. Where does it say in the Bible you can't have an affair? Here. Where does it say in the Bible, da, 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 da? There is no, there's nothing that gets us out of this. Okay? That's bad cop. Here's good cop. But that seems so lame. I mean, people were back then were getting married at like 12 for crying out loud and only living to 40. And I mean, we live in this enlightened society and what's wrong with a little pornography to kind of spice up our marriage? Remember, this is PG-13 now, this part. Okay, so if you have younger ears, this is the part you want them to leave. Okay, because... And, and, I mean, why is it? So I get married, and this is the only naked woman I can look at the rest of my life? I mean, is that, is that real? And what about, I mean, for crying out loud, I'm single, and seriously, I can't do anything? I mean, I had puberty at 12, and I didn't get married to 29. Are you telling me that the only option for me is not to have uh, sexual encounters? Are you kidding me? Why would God give us those desires and then say, don't do anything with them? That seems so utterly and colossally unfair. And after all, aren't we under Christ and forgiven for everything we'll do so i'll worship him in all my areas except this one this one seems like it's kind of necessary just to get me through life now does that sound familiar to anybody or is that just am i talking to myself so we're going to use ephesians to springboard into exploring some of these questions because when the scriptures say there shouldn't even be a hint of this in the church you think there's a hint of it here? Absolutely. Absolutely. We're in a culture that's drenched with it. And the church has done a horrific job talking about this issue. And I'm a huge fan of church, but man, have we messed this up. We either don't say anything, or when we say something, it's thou shalt not. Neither are very helpful. When I was 13, I had a guy I didn't know who was a youth group leader sit me down. Hello, John and Wendy. He sat me down. They've heard this story. They're already anticipating where it's going. They showed up just to hear it again. 
they sat me down and they pulled out a green sheet of paper and on the green sheet of paper was something called the biological hand grenade ladder. It was a ladder and every rung, so it started with holding hands and then there was hugging and then there was kissing and then there was French kissing and then there was petting. Could you think of a more awkward word? And then heavy petting, which, which quite frankly frightened me. And, then you, and, and, and literally, the image, see, the, see, you can envision it over here. The image was the higher you go up on the ladder, the more explosive the biological consequences. Now, take the most awkward conversation you've ever had. Take the mo- most awkward subject you could ever imagine. Take the most awkward age you could ever be at. Combine that together, multiply it by infinity, and that's what that conversation was like. Was that really helpful? No. And my dad, God bless him, single dad, didn't quite know how to do this right, hands me a Playboy magazine and says, this is what women are like. Right. So, from the church, I hear biological hand grenade ladder, so stay away from petting. And then from dad, I hear nakedness, right? And, I'm, and then he doesn't throw the magazine away, which wasn't helpful, dad. And so these are the conflicting messages I have. The church has really messed this one up. So I'm going to take this opportunity to go to Genesis because Genesis is always a good place to go. Genesis chapter 1. If you're here and you're thinking, well, I don't struggle with this. I want to be you. But you struggle with other things, and we'll talk about those later. (laughs) But today it's me and my struggles that get center stage. Now, Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God makes male and female. What is the first command given to human beings? Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, what? Be fruitful and multiply. Now, have you ever stopped to consider of all the ways that we could reproduce, God chose one that is incredibly fun. He could have had us plant seeds in the ground and up pop babies. He could have had us sit on eggs for crying out loud. But instead, he takes a man and a woman and the attraction and the arousal and the whole package and he says, that's your job. Do that. Go to chapter 2. Verse 22, the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man and the man was happy. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and Xbox and is united (laughs) to his wife, bonded to his wife. And they become what? One flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked. They were both naked and they felt no shame. So Genesis ends with Adam and Eve naked in a garden called Delight. Okay, that's what Eden means. With a command to have sex. That's glorious. And the point we should draw 
from this. And this is, this is big. We were sexual before we were sinful. That sexuality is a great gift of a good God. And the church, instead of starting with the announcement that God says, it is good, starts with, it is fallen. It's not how the Bible starts. The Bible starts with a resounding yes to sex. If there was a Facebook page dedicated to sex, God would like it. That was horrible. (laughs) And there are parts of the Bible that are so erotic that as 13-year-old Jewish boys, you were not allowed to read them. The Song of Solomon is not a metaphor for how God loves His people, or else it would be really weird. It is a celebration of intimacy and love, and God has one phrase. He speaks directly to this couple and he says, eat your fill. That's what he says. I've taught it a couple of times and our English Bibles tone it down. And the reason we have to overmake this point, and I'm being so obnoxious about it, not only am I naturally obnoxious, but intentionally obnoxious about this point, is because you never hear it in a church context, ever, ever. You never hear it celebrated. You never hear permission given that sexual feelings and attraction, the desire for release, that whole butterfly chemistry thing is good. It's okay. And it's incredibly spiritual. It's not a reflection of your sinfulness. It's a reflection of your humanity. And it's a good gift. It's good. I want my little boy as he grows into puberty, I want him to know that that journey isn't a sinful journey. But we so, we so often start, and I've talked to couples who have said, no, 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 no. It's bad, 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 bad. Then they get married and they can't enjoy the gift because the church has warped it in their mind. God doesn't start there. It is good. Of all the ways to do this, it is good. And it is powerful. The Scriptures say, for this reason, a a man will leave his family identification and be bonded. It's a strong word that means glued together with his wife. And they will be called one flesh. In other words, there is no other way that two human beings become one human person other than sexually. And in fact, the word one here that is used to describe the unity of the two is also used to describe the unity of the Father, Son, and Spirit. In the Bible, sex is a spiritual issue. It's not just about bodies. That's why pornography is so lame. Pornography isn't sexual enough because it just makes it about body parts. Sex is this mystical joining of two souls where literally... Your unity in sex. And think about this. God loves to use physical imagery to picture spiritual reality. So, the elements of communion, right? The bread, the cup, is a picture of the spiritual reality of the sacrifice of Christ. Baptism, under the water, out of the water, is a picture of the spiritual reality of someone's newness in Christ. Sex is a picture 
of the spiritual reality of the oneness of the two that engage in it. Health classes lie. They tell us it's just body parts and it's purely biology. And hallelujah for body parts and biology. But that's not all that it is. And so the scriptures start by saying it is powerful because literally, I mean, the image is you bond. And then if you rip away and bond with another and then rip away and then bond with another and then rip away, what you're doing is you're actually leaving bits and pieces of your soul and you're shrinking your soul's capacity to actually experience the good gift that sex is. So it's not like God comes along and says, oh man, these guys look like they're having way too much fun, so let's just kibosh it. Oh, it's just the opposite. It's like this is an incredible gift, but it can be used for such destructive power, right? It has such destructive power. I mean, and think about it, anything that's powerful has guidelines about how to use it, right? We don't just give anyone the keys to a car, Or if you're doing a home remodel and the electrician comes and says, hey, see these exposed wires? Don't touch them or you'll be electrocuted. We don't look at the electrician and go, man, that's so unfair. I mean, why would you give me the, why would you even point out the wires? I want to touch them. I mean, you don't look and say, what? Right, but when it comes to this, I mean, the minute you even hear the briefest hint of a no, we immediately go, that is so not cool. What is God doing? And so there's just a bit of a double standard that's betrayed in us. But the Bible affirms, step one, it is good. And we got to start there. we got to celebrate it in all of its goodness. Because it's not just the biological hand grenade ladder. It's that, but it's so much more than that. And we got to tell our kids, listen, this is awesome. You don't start with saying, now this is dirty and naughty and bad, save it for the one you love. What's that? Right? You start by saying, man, God's a genius. He is. And then you say, and because he's a genius, he created something so so unbelievably powerful that if you bond and rip and bond and rip, you literally hollow yourself out. Hugh Hefner is like the paradigm example of this. Nobody knows this about Dear Hef, but the paradigm of heterosexuality can no longer enjoy heterosexual sex. He has to masturbate to another kind of pornography entirely. And one of his girlfriends said this, I don't know, five years ago, and I just thought, isn't it ironic that the man who spent his whole life celebrating something that now he cannot himself enjoy. And the carnage of sex wrongly used is everywhere. And yet we all insist to learn for ourselves. And so the scripture comes, and it's not like God saying, I just don't want you to have fun. It's so much deeper than that. Because there's something mystical that happens. And so, when Paul writes to a community, avoid any hint of this. See, this is what's in view. It's not just, hey guys, now that you're a Christian, no fun for you. He's saying fundamentally, that's no longer who you are. And it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Why would you go back? That's just not who you are anymore. Go to Romans chapter 1. 
Paul does this thing in Romans 1 that I, I just hate. Because what he does is he talks about how you and I get tempted into sexual sin. And it's almost like God knows us. Okay, I thought that was funny. Nobody else did. So the Scriptures start, it is good, it is powerful, and then the third piece of the puzzle is we're fallen. And so now, to the core of us, we want what's worse for us. Right? Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 2 ends, hey, you can eat of the fruit of any tree in the garden. You're naked and unashamed. Your address is the garden called delight. Enjoy. The tempter comes in Genesis 3 in a garden full of yeses. What does the tempter focus their attention on? The one thing they can't have. Did God really say you can't eat that fruit? And then he says, doesn't that seem a little unfair to you? And then she says, yeah, but we could die if we do it. And then God says, oh, you won't. And I want to show you Romans 1 teaches that, God, that, that our enemy hasn't changed his M.O. in like however many thousands of years. We still fall prey to this. So Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Paul's talking about how no one's born an atheist. He says, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor what? Gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal humans and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Verse 26. Because of this, God gave them over. Verse 28. God gave them over. Now this is a really fun passage of, of the Bible. And what Paul, he said sarcastically, and what Paul does is he actually talks about how sexual sin works. And it's quite similar to how the sin of our first parents worked in Genesis chapter 3. Mondo. Fire up the PowerPoint. Ladies and gentlemen, I learned how to do arrows this week. Look at that. I know. You're welcome. Notice how Paul traces this. He says, first, although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor what? Gave thanks. Now here's what's so interesting. Adam and Eve had a garden full of yeses. And they only had one no. So where does the temptation come? The one thing you can't have. Paul says, sexual sin starts when you live a life of somebody who's focused on what you lack instead of focused on what you have. I mean, it's just that simple. As single people, you could have a full life of friends and family and work relationships or school. You could have an 
intimate relationship with Jesus, but you can't have this. And so where does temptation come? Just right there. Married people, you could have a delightful marriage. Right? Many years together. Children, a, a beautiful family, but maybe it's gotten a little like safe and boring and comfortable. And so the enemy comes and, and it's, well, why can't you look at another naked individual? Why can't you picture what this, what it would be like with this person over here? Or why can't you have just a little emotional something or other, you know, just to kind of pep you up? I mean, it's like, we come along and we're incredibly entitled people if you're anything like me. And so I never, I'm never focused on what I have. I'm always focused on what I need or what I lack or what I could have or whatever's denied me. And so it's interesting, Paul hasn't talked about sex yet. He talks about whether or not you are fundamentally a person who's grateful or fundamentally a person who's entitled. Because our sexual problems don't start with our sexual problems. They start with fundamentally what you think God's like. If God's good, you place sex into that view of God. If God's bad, and it doesn't matter what you say or what you sing about God, it's, you, what matters is how you live. And so if you think God's bad, and put sex into that view of God, well, then he's holding out on you. And notice, for Paul, it goes from ingratitude, it goes quickly to something called idolatry. Idolatry is when you... attribute to something other than God what only God is due. And Paul says, what happens to people? They start worshiping creation rather than the Creator, right? Are we hanging in, you guys? And ultimately, sex worship is self-worship. It's just saying, my desires are more important than anything else. And this is what our world says. Our world says freedom means you can do anything you want without hurting anybody else. And anything that gets in the way of your desires is automatically bad by definition. The scriptures paint a different picture. The desires are good things, but they're tainted and fallen and need to be redirected under some authority that isn't you. And it's a short step for Paul from, hey, there's a tree over there I can't eat, to man, it's really unfair that there should be a tree over there that I can't eat of, and so I think I'll eat it. Do you see that step? The step goes from, because there's a no, God must not be good. God must not be fair. Do you see this? It's really important you see this, because this is the game we play. So I hear, avoid every appearance of sexual immorality, and I go, well, that's not fair. But I'm already approaching it out of a view that says I'm entitled to whatever I think or whatever I want. And Paul reframes the discussion and says, no, no, no. Fundamentally, people that don't give thanks just for all that they have and are focused on what they lack, it's a short step for those people to actually believe they know better and place themselves on the throne that only God should occupy. That's what idolatry is. And then it's a really short step from thinking you know better to acting wrongly and rationalizing your behavior. Now, it will not surprise you, I have waged a lifelong battle with pornography. Right? I was set up for it, and then I embraced it, and I don't know how I would have made it if it was so readily available as it is now. 
But I need you to understand there is no more fertile territory for rationalizing sin than in sexual sin. I mean, and I, I'm embarrassed, but here's some of the lies I've told myself. Right when it comes to porn, I deserve it. It's not hurting anybody else. No one will know. It's not hurting anybody else. Not hurting anybody else. I'll get ideas. So someday when I'm married, I mean, I, I used all of that to just say, ah, it's just not a big deal. And in order to sin, ingratitude is focusing on the no. Idolatry is placing yourself on the throne that only God occupies. Immorality is when you deny the consequences. It doesn't hurt anybody. It's not hurt, even hurting me. It's just a healthy form of release. And so what the Scripture does is it just accurately diagnoses and calls sin, sin. And whether it's lust, or whether it's porn, or whether it's an emotional little flirty thing you got going, whether it's writing your old girlfriend or boyfriend on Facebook, which evidently is now like so common, because the, the best fantasy out there that you could have is the one that got away. And now you can find the one that got away. I mean, we can just justify all of that so quickly. Am I alone in this? I mean, I know this is kind of like real life stuff, but we've gotten awfully quiet. And the problem is, if you live in immorality enough, you find yourself imprisoned. Now, here's what's interesting about the way God imprisons people. God doesn't imprison people by locking them in something. He imprisons people by locking them out of something. So what did He do with Adam and Eve? Cast them out of this garden. What does He do with you and me? Three times. God gave them over. Now, this is so critical. We misunderstand the nature of God's judgment. We think God judges us when she gets pregnant. We get a disease. Someone sees my browser. We think that's judgment. I'm telling you that's mercy. His judgment is found precisely in those moments when He gives us what we want. When He simply says, you want it, you can have it. And men and women, there is no greater definition of prison than, a, than somebody who says, I don't want to, but I can't help it. When you find yourself so enslaved that you literally go, I don't want to, but I can't help it. And the only thing that actually helps you feel any better is doing again the thing that caused you to feel so bad in the first place. That is the highest form of slavery. And I wish I could stand here and say I have no idea what that's like. I know exactly what that's like exactly what that's like. And I know that there are men and women in this room who know exactly what that's like too. And so Paul comes along. You have to get this. For three chapters, you are loved. You are blessed. You have an inheritance. Your identity has changed. And then he invites us out of all the behaviors that defined our old natures, and he says, that's not true of you anymore. Come out of hiding. 
Be healed from that. See, brothers and sisters, you have to understand, Jesus is not interested in managing your behavior. He's interested in changing your heart so that you want what is healthy. That involves managing your behavior, but that is not the focus. I've talked to way too many guys. I've been one myself. I've fallen. I've fallen again. I'll promise God I won't do it again. And three days later, here it is. This isn't about empty accountability. This isn't about morality. This is about us calling darkness, darkness. And then beginning the process of redemption. Not just in theory, but in practice. The worst thing you could be feeling is, well, I'm damaged goods because I've blown it, like yesterday. Sorry, I've had affairs. Sorry, I am addicted. Sorry, I've blown it with my boyfriend. I mean, the worst thing you could think is your damaged goods. No, 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 no. The work of Jesus is to restore and renew and to reconcile. He actually does this in real time. But it starts with a community willing to simply call darkness, darkness, and light, light. It starts with a community that says, you know what? There are a whole bunch of us who actually want freedom. And not just the petty freedom of behavior management, because that isn't what God has. God doesn't want me to white-knuckle my way to purity. He actually wants me to want Him and my wife and obedience and freedom. And so for me, I want you to know, I have passwords, I have computer like software that records every search, Google image, website, Everything. If I try to turn it off, it notifies my whole crew. I mean, this is ridiculous. I want you to know my wife has disabled the browser on my phone. I can get to stuff. We have passwords on our television. And it's not because I'm a raging pornographer. You guys are looking at me like, really? You got all holier than thou on me, and I just want to say, okay, well, you get up here and start sharing your crap. And then we'll see how you're doing. Uh, I don't know why you're clapping. It's not because I'm a raging pornographer, but I could be. I could be. And I'm not an idiot. Well, I'm an idiot in lots of ways. But in this way, I'm not an idiot. And 99 times out of 100, it could be there and I not use it. I don't want even the wants to be an option for me. No way. And you know what? That isn't burdensome to me. Not at all. That kind of accountability is not burdensome because I've tasted the slavery. And that is horrible. I don't ever want it again. So, Paul says, every hand, I don't hear that as some moral killjoy God. I hear that as, yeah, I want that too. The journey for me started with a ruthless confession. I mean, literally one night, I was working for a church 15 years ago, dating a gal 
going way too far, but we weren't having sex. Addicted to porn. One night, God very kindly and firmly said one word to me. Just one word. Enough. 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 It wasn't the wrathful God. I could hear Him almost grieving. Our sin grieves the Spirit. Enough. Enough. Next day, I called the elders of my church and I told them about my little double life. Was that fun? But I was tired enough of prison that it was no burden. And these were guys who ended up being men of grace and truth and they sent me out into the middle of a forest in a cabin <laughs> with no television, no radio. And they say, go meet with Jesus. Now how dumb an idea did that sound at the time? I wish I were so godly, I was like, oh yes, that's exactly what I need. I was like, what a waste. Really? I confess all this stuff and you're going to send me off by myself? Really? For three days, I'm not exaggerating, I still have my journal. For three days, I hid from God by memorizing the Bible and by reading books. And then God very gently, one night, just took all of the rationalizations and just all the pretending away. And I saw how dark I really was. And in that same moment, it was just funny. It's hard to describe. In that same moment, I also saw how much God uh, loved me and how much He stood ready to restore me and to forgive me. And I know that's what you're supposed to say. And I'd been preaching that and I knew it in my head. But I never knew it for me. I knew it for other people. Never knew it for me. And that began a long conversation that Jesus and I have been having still to this day about what it really means to follow Him when I want things that are outside of what He wants for me. And so the invitation this morning, brothers and sisters, is to come out of hiding. To adopt a lifestyle of something called repentance. It's an old-fashioned Bible word that just means turning around. You're going this way, you go the other way. Best definition of repentance I've ever heard. You've heard this from me before, if you've heard me talk about this. It's called an autobiography in five short chapters. I love this. Chapter one. I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost. I'm helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter two. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place. But it isn't my fault, and it still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see that it is there. I fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault, and I get out immediately. Chapter 4. 
I walk down the same street, there's a deep hole in the sidewalk, and I walk around it. Chapter 5, I walk down another street. And men and women, that is the gospel of Jesus to you. No matter what you've done or what's been done to you, you have a fundamentally different identity. And a God who loves you and delights in you invites you to start living it out with your body. And I realize for some this sounds so quaint and so Puritan and so whatever. But until you've walked the path in, into prison and in out, you haven't really come to understood that grace is not just grace to forgive, it's grace to transform. So brothers and sisters, would you stand? Normally we'd want to worship and sing together, but I've yapped too much. And so I hate ending our time together just with this. But I want to let you know a couple of things. Number one, if you're here, and this is highly relevant to you, there have been courageous men and women who've kind of found their way down to the front while everyone else is leaving, who've just said, I could really use some prayer or someone to talk with. We are not in the business of judging and condemning each other. We are in the business of praying and restoring one another. And so we have a crew of people who would want to bless and listen and pray. Secondly, we're going to put some resources up on the screen uh, if this is a battle and you're sick of losing. Uh, feel free to do whatever. And then lastly, uh, I'm going to send you from here. And normally, like I said, we want to close in worship. But our worship this morning, uh, I just want to end by praying a blessing over you. Okay? So would you close your eyes? And then when I'm done, you can go ahead and you can leave. Tell your children what they missed. Or not. <laughs> in the name of the Father, and in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. God Almighty, I pray by Your grace and Your truth that You would come and that You would bring conviction where it is needed. That You would bring hope where it is needed. That where You would bring healing, God. You would bring strength. You would give us grace and courage to actually believe that You're good, even in this. And that God, we would be continually a community set apart for Your purposes, not because we have it all together, Lord, You know better than that. But because we are people willing to tell the truth about You and about ourselves, and in so doing, arrive at, at a journey that leads us to health, to wholeness, to godliness. Jesus, help us to be people who joyfully and willingly follow wherever You would lead. And God Almighty, we need Your help. We are people broken in this area. We are people sinful in this area. We are people who've been abused and raped and molested in this area. We are people so desperately in need of Your healing touch. We are people desperately in need of deliverance, God, from our adversary who's methods have not changed in thousands of years, who invites us to focus only on what we lack, who invites us to step out and think we know better, who invites us to deny the cost of disobedience, and who invites us ultimately to spend life in prison.
of our own making. And God Almighty, in the name of Jesus, would you bring healing to this community? God, would you bring a holiness that comes from joy? And would you allow us to be a community that simply delights in reminding each other who you are and what you've done? We pray to the glory of this Nazarene called Jesus. Amen. Amen. Go in grace. There'll be folks up here if you'd like to pray or to talk. Ah.